Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on the Russo-Ukrainian war. But first, joining me, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks as always for joining us. Always great to have you on the program. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, thank you very much. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Uh, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, we're one month uh, into the war that you uh, artfully refer to as the Russo-Ukrainian War. Uh, and despite uh, Russia's targeting of civilians, and I want to make that uh, exceptionally clear, this is discriminate. It is not indiscriminate. Uh, they know, the Russians know exactly what it is they're doing, uh, striking apartment blocks, hospitals, schools, uh, people where they hide, people when they flee uh, for the specific purpose of, of terrorizing the population. Um, as of our taping, Mariupol uh, has refused to surrender, uh, and Zelensky is making clear that his nation is going to keep fighting. What are the takeaways uh, over the past week, especially since the Russians are making gains? Uh, they did so over, over the weekend and deployed hypersonic weapons uh, in combat for the first time, which fueled a wave of concern by people. Even uh, several American friends of mine who are normally pretty steely were like, oh, oh my God, he's using hypersonics. This is getting serious, which I think is why Putin used them, right? Is, is his shambolic army is getting chewed up and he wanted to establish some deterrence. Where, where are we? What are the takeaways over, over the past week from your perspective? Well, I think one theme was just and, and I take a little bit of issue with this, that, oh, it's really kind of bogged down, that both sides are, they're just not accomplishing much. I mean, you mentioned these are minor gains. Uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians have launched some, I call counterattacks, not a counteroffensive. The Russians really do appear to be bogged down uh, in Kiev, and I don't think they're going to be able uh, to take Odessa. Um, the interesting area to watch is still Eastern Ukraine and whether or not uh, that Russians can launch an offensive from the south and north that pinches off uh, the Ukrainian forces that are arrayed in the Donbass. And I, I keep coming back to this theme. We really don't know a lot about the, the state of the Ukrainian armed forces. There's been so much imagery of Russian losses, and the Ukrainians have talked about the, uh, the casualties the Russians have suffered, but there's really very little information on, on the state of the on the state of the Ukrainian military. So I think it's fair to say, um, you know, this is gonna go on for another couple of weeks until someone starts to achieve a bit more of an edge here. And that's when I think, um, you know, you can see a negotiated settlement uh, that, will, that will end at least the conventional, the, the high intensity conventional phase of this. Um, the use of a, a hypersonic missile, I mean, really all it is, it's just an air-launched Iskander missile. Um, and, you know, I think it's important. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a hypersonic weapon, sure, but I mean, most missiles are hypersonic uh, in, in their terminal stage. So I don't know if I, I suppose, you know, 
and it was used against a you know what a shopping center I believe that no that was an Iskander launch I don't I don't know where the uh, hypersonic it was a it was a, um, a Ukrainian arms uh, storage bunker arms. Uh, is at least what the Russians have said and and the Ukrainians uh, have confirmed there was a strike but I they said you know we don't know what type of weapon yeah. hit us I mean ultimately it's a weapon like any other right yeah, I mean, exactly so. So I don't see the use of a hypersonic weapon as a major escalation or a, a, a new bridge that's being crossed. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the very powerful um, speeches that Zelensky has been making uh, over the weekend to the Israeli Knesset, it's, it's interesting. He's been very effective in trying to move this along, but, 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 um, you know, and I think this is going to be the key watching what comes out of this NATO summit on uh, the 24th. You know, is there going to be any stepped up increase in kit that's being supplied to the Ukrainians? I think equally important, Vago, is, you know, are we going to start seeing a move maybe above beyond 2% of GDP? Um, I wrote about over the weekend, you know, I think a lot of this is really going to be just to get to 2%, you're really talking about a replacement cycle for defense in Europe, but the size of their armed forces, you know, if we start to see that increase, these countries actually add force structure, um, that's where you get into a longer, more extended cycle for defense. Um, so what do you expect the outcome of the NATO uh, summit to be, right? We have uh, obviously Germany's massive uh, investment. Um, we have a refugee crisis um, where the nations in the East are absorbing um, now more than 3 million uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. I think it actually might be closer to 4 million right now. Um, what's your sense on what uh, they're going to accomplish, uh, whether on the weapons side of things, whether on spending, uh, whether on Russia writ large? And, and I would even say, right, I mean, what, what do the Ukrainians most immediately need? Air and missile defenses. Yeah. What, what do you think we're going to see coming out of this? Well, I think the problem, a couple of thoughts here. I, I don't have a specific insight. You know, there, there's some things that I would expect to see discussed. Um, again, I kind of wrote about this. I mean, air missile defense, uh, you know, it, it you don't just kind of hand this over to someone and expect that they can operate it. Uh, it could take weeks and months to really uh, train uh, Ukrainian units to be proficient in using something like Patriot. So I don't think that that's necessarily going to be a key focus. What I, what I think should probably happen, though, is there could be more discussion about aid to some of the smaller states uh, that, uh, or, or larger states that don't have the fiscal capacity. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Romania and the Baltic states, um, you know, to kind of further review what their defense needs are going to be. Romania had ordered Patriot. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if they've taken delivery of any of the initial units, but, um, you know, their capacity to absorb that, you know, can you accelerate those deliveries? Can you, can you maybe even think about uh, further increases to the, the Patriot units that they're taking? Germany, you know, is still kind of flip-flopping around about older Patriots that they have, um, they, they were looking at Meads or the, what is it? The medium, medium, what's it? Medium? The MEADS, right. Um, medium extended air defense, yeah. uh, Germany, system. Germany, uh, yeah, Germany really hadn't committed to a new air defense program because they were looking at MEADS as a solution to the Patriot, 
uh, units that they deploy, you know, could there be some movement on that, particularly given the fact that Germany has now moved some of its uh, Patriot units to Slovakia? Um, I think, I, I don't know if there's going to be a real discussion about, you know, reaffirming the 2% goal is fine. Um, but, you know, the, the real question for me is going to be, what are people thinking about where Russia is going to be in 2023 or 2024 or 2025? You know, what kind of military threat will it be? <clears throat> and then, you know, what what should be the the force posture that and, and the size of forces that NATO should have arrayed against a Russia in that time frame? And I'm, clearly, that's a big question mark that I don't think anybody really knows. Um, but I think you need to start thinking about the planning process and some of the assumptions that are going to go into those assessments. And, you know, again, I kind of wrote about this over the weekend, um, the size of the, the active duty personnel and most of the major European militaries has been pretty stagnant uh, over the last decade. Um, and it's been you can say the same thing. Russia increased the size of their military a bit after 2020, after 2014. Um, but, you know, you're, we're not back to NATO Warsaw Pact force levels. Having said that, you know, right. is, is there a scenario where Russia really does start to militarize its economy again? And, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at a very different uh, threat posture that, that the European states and the United States have to contend with. And that's, that's, obviously debatable right now, but um, the corner that I think Putin has backed himself into um, suggests that, uh, you know, that that could be a, an outcome uh, from what, what's really been a very poorly handled campaign in Ukraine. Indeed. I mean, I, I think everybody, including his own general staff, would probably agree on that. Um, and, and the air defense uh, point that I was trying to make is it makes most sense for countries that operate S-300s and any other like system oh, yeah, that the Ukrainians absolutely. have an inventory, transfer those immediately over there and then have the United States at least establish Patriot, THAAD. Uh, and other uh, coverage in the region um, to to backfill it. I think Romanians had said, hey, we're willing to part with our systems as long as America gives us a little air and missile defense support. And, and I think that that yeah. makes great sense. Absolutely. Greece has some S-300 uh, batteries and, and I assume interceptors. So uh, absolutely. I mean, if you can if you can flow equipment to Ukraine that they can use tomorrow, um, I absolutely expect that's going to be reiterated. And they're probably, there's probably a lot of stuff kind of tucked away in warehouses or bunkers um, in Europe that, that could, and possibly even in some of the Middle East states too, that, uh, that also have been, um, that, that they still have Russian kit in their inventory or so um, really. Uh, let me let me ask. Uh, our, our time is running short, and we've got to look at the week ahead. But I want to add, uh, ask you one question uh, in between those two. Right? Um, there's um, the the administration has repeatedly sort of self deterred itself. Right? I mean, first it took troops entirely off the table. Then it was let's not do a provocative missile test. Right? I mean, so and I've written about this that stunned at the speed with which sanctions were imposed, they became afraid of pushing Putin a little too far. Uh, so we postponed a missile test. We declined the b b b Polish MIG offer. There are other systems that we don't want to put on the table because we think they're provocative. Um, is, is that a danger given the condition of the Russian army and Putin's, you know, where else is he going to strike? 
And he wouldn't be nearly stupid enough to strike the NATO alliance and, and what that means, right? I mean, so are we deterring ourselves from putting up as fierce a fight as is necessary for fear that he might do something that he actually might not do? Um, look, you know, it, it, to me, it really, I don't think we'd be having this discussion if Russia didn't have several thousand tactical nuclear warheads. I mean, I, I think that's that's the, the Rubicon that everybody is looking at. And that, that to me, you know, a cornered Russia, um, you know, could, could resort to tactical nuclear weapons. And I just think that that's where you really start going down paths that uh, you, you tell me where they lead. Um, so I'm not, and I think there's also a time element here, Fago, you know, you were part of the email exchange over the weekend with someone, you know, we're talking about the state of Russian industry and, and even little things like their capacity to build ball bearings. I, I think there's a time element here that if, again, it's an if, if the export controls can be maintained, and frankly, we ought to see something similar to COCOM be resurrected, where this is coordinated centrally with allies. Um, and maybe that's something that comes out of the NATO summit. Um, the, the ability of Russia to generate military capacity is gonna be severely limited. Um, they're gonna to have to go through, a, you know, they're gonna to have to rebuild their own machine tool industry um, first, and that's gonna take years. So it, it kind of gets back to a point about, um, yeah, you know, is, is, is Russia gonna be North Korea on the Volga? Um, and if it is, you know, yeah, Russia can generate and sustain nuclear power, but what's their real capacity to, to move into Poland or, or the Baltic states um, in 2025 or 2030? I mean, I, I think they've got a military that's probably going to be a wasting asset unless they go through, you know, kind of the, the full um, militarization or remilitarization of their economy. And as I said, I, that's quite possible. It, it could be could be Putin, it could be somebody who replaces Putin. Um, but you know, I, I think I think what what the what the alliance is doing right now um, it is they they can't let Ukraine fail outright. And arguably that's not happening. I do think you know, what, what's, what's on my mind is, is kind of what could happen in the Donbass. And as I said, we just don't know what's the Ukrainian order battle, where are their mechanized and, and armor units, you know, how, how well are some of these territorial units holding up? And if Russia pinches off the Donbass and with it, a couple of the Ukrainian mechanized uh, brigades, um, that's where I think that that's where we're going to have to think, okay, what next? Um, but we're not there yet, at least today. But uh, maybe that maybe that's something else that comes in NATO planning assumptions is because there are some French assessments that, you know, like a lot of these wars, <clears throat> they're fought and fought, and then and then there's a breakthrough moment, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, what looks like a stalemate looks like a rout, and and that's a scenario that I think I, I assume is going to be discussed as well uh, late later this week and uh, with the NATO summit. And we have less than a minute. Uh, highlights, what should folks be tuning into over the course of the week? Senate Armed Services confirmation hearing with, with Bill LaPlante, uh, who's nominated for Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. 
Um, there are a couple of uh, CSIS events, one on uh, Ukraine and Taiwan that I'm kind of intrigued by. Um, Atlanta Council is doing one on Europe defense. Uh, I believe that the Polish, uh, Polish government official, it may even be their defense minister. There's probably a, a satellite 2022 uh, show and conferences going on in Washington, D.C. And as we saw last week, with the federal budget now going to be dropped on March 28th, there are bound to be reports on what's in that budget for defense. Last week, Bloomberg broke the story about the F-35 cut. Um, there, were, there were other reports about um, 10 of the littoral combat ships being mustered out. So there's bound to be uh, good reporting on what's in that budget before it actually comes out. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is part of the crack team. Uh, that includes Michael Kaufman as well as Jeff Edmonds. Uh, he is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for having me back, Wago. Indeed. Uh, I should have also pointed out to the audience that you're one of the world's leading experts, uh, not just on unmanned systems, but also Russia's uh, unmanned capabilities. First, let me give you an opportunity to uh, give the disclaimer that you always uh, give uh, about what it is that we know publicly about this operation, because it's worth stressing the view that we have is not a fully objective view, correct? Right. We're in the midst of a very intense information environment, information war, information competition. This is the competition that Ukrainians are winning. Uh, a lot of what is posted gives um, an impression that uh, Russian military has been beaten on all fronts, that it is losing its equipment left and right. And the impression is a result of a very active and very successful Ukrainian media campaign on social media platforms such as TikTok and Twitter. But even as uh, some of these, or even if most of these are actually factually correct, and Russian military has lost equipment, soldiers, personnel, it isn't the entire picture. Uh, the social media doesn't give a full aperture on everything that is happening in Ukraine. Russian and Ukrainian militaries are fighting um, along the longest and largest front probably since World War II. And it is impossible to gain a full picture just by looking at social media, which is what gets uh, multiplied exponentially by people posting and reposting and discussing information. And so a lot of what is posted is correct, but it is not the full 100% picture. Uh, indeed. And, and those who uh, actually have the fuller picture uh, obviously are constrained in their ability to be able to, uh, to discuss it. Um, where are we uh, now in this uh, campaign? We're a month almost uh, into it. It will be a month uh, as of Thursday when uh, President Biden meets with his uh, NATO counterparts at the Alliance's uh, emergency summit. Um, over the past weekend, we've seen Mariupol, uh, even though it is uh, surrounded by Russian forces and being uh, incessantly pounded, uh, the city refused to surrender. Uh, we've seen uh, the Ukrainian people uh, refuse uh, to surrender and uh, accept Russia's terms, which is accept Crimea as Russian, uh, accept uh, Donbass and Luhansk uh, as uh, independent states with a corridor connecting them all uh, to uh, Russia. Where are we after this first month of conflict? So we are at a stalemate of sorts. A Russian initial advance has stalled around key areas. 
Russian military was unable to take Kiev. They are unable to take Kharkiv. Uh, they have progressed relatively steadily from Crimea northward, but uh, they have not been able to take or move towards Odessa in any significant capacity. Right now, there's a lot of movement on sort of the southeastern front with Russian forces from Crimea trying to link up with the forces out of Donbass, surround Mariupol, um, and create one sort of um, <clears throat> solid front along that, uh, along that perimeter. On the political front, there are discussions ongoing. There are political negotiations taking place about the fate of Ukraine, about the fate of this war. But uh, Russian military, again, uh, has advanced along a very large front, and therefore some of the um, issues that have that have probably plagued uh, Russian military before the war have become readily apparent, um, and there are issues with morale. Some issues are with logistics. Obviously, information environment is a big question mark with the Ukrainian. I'm sorry, with the Russian military, considering how much the Russians have placed an emphasis on dominating information environment in so many of their analyses, writings, and public presentations. The Ukrainian military is fighting back. It is launching counterattacks, but it too is exhausted. And so the question remains how long this phase of the war would continue. Would it be several days or several weeks? And then what happens afterwards? Would there be a ceasefire? Or are we seeing sort of um, a conclusion or the completion of a stage of the war or um, a significant part of this conflict. I want to get to uh, the first uh, use of uh, hypersonic weapons, or at least Russia's claim to have used hypersonic weapons uh, in a moment. But what, you know, NATO is meeting, uh, Sam. What are the kind of capabilities that Ukraine at this point, given what you can discuss publicly, what are the capabilities the Ukrainians really need at this point, right? I mean, and I, I would suspect S-300 reloads, batteries, and the like would be the single most important, whether they come from Romania, Greece, or anywhere else, right? Well, judging by how this conflict is going, Ukrainians need more anti-tank systems and weapons. They need anti-aircraft coverage and munitions. Uh, they need better secure protected communications. They probably need uh, additional unmanned uh, aerial vehicles that are somewhere in between the civilian quadrocopters used and the Bayraktar drones, which are still operating. They need that for better situational awareness. Uh, they need uh, logistical capacity and just uh, regular supplies to uh, essentially uh, strengthen Ukrainian capabilities with the situation currently as it is, it looks like, again, we have reached a stalemate of sorts. So they need to re-equip and they need to rearm. Um, heavier systems can become targets for Russian Air Force, which is still very much effective. And so mobile dispersed um, technologies, something that can um, allow Ukrainians to constantly evade uh, Russian um, Air Force, multiple launch rocket systems and artillery would probably be very beneficial. Would Reaper and Gray Eagle aircraft be useful? The United States has large uh, uh, inventories of them. They're sitting unused and uh, they can be operated from laptops in the field. Would that be something that would be useful for Ukraine? And I say this uh, just on my own, right? Even though General Atomics uh, Aeronautical Systems, the maker of this system, uh, is our sponsor. 
Well, we have to, again, we have to be cognizant of the capabilities that Ukrainians have. Uh, we have to recognize that using a lot more sophisticated UAVs because the drones you mentioned are more sophisticated than the Turkish Bayraktars flying today. They require training. They require, um, uh, they essentially require preparation. But um, in this conflict right now, uh, the worth of the combat aerial vehicles was proven over and over again, as it has been in previous conflicts, when a side that is better prepared and is better capable can field multiple different types of unmanned aerial systems with great efficiency and to great effect. So again, uh, these vehicles can be helpful, absolutely, given what they are and what they can do. The question is, um, can appropriate training be given and what right. that would look like politically, because, for example, Russian military is classifying American aerial vehicles as um, sort of in the same category as as missiles and other dangerous aircraft. And so um, it, it may view this sort of acquisition on an equal footing with Ukraine getting, for example, combat aircraft. And um, that can sort of take this conflict into into an entirely new stage, both militarily and politically. Ukraine is still a sovereign state with a democratically elected government. And as far as I'm concerned, Putin knows the rules of the proxy warfare game. He started this. Everybody in the world uh, or many nations around the world are opposing him. And that's part of the deal. They're going to export all the capability to this democratically elected uh, sovereign nation. Uh, to to fight the Russians, so you know if you don't if you if if you don't want to you know do the time, don't do the crime, uh, would would be the message. Let me just um, go over to um, Russia's hypersonic uh, weapon uh, use. Um, it appears that it was a kinshal uh, that was fired uh, against the Ukrainian arms dump. I don't want to necessarily belabor this, but it did spark spark um, considerable panic around the world. Oh my God, you know, he's using hypersonic weapons. I think that's the reason why Putin did it. He could have used any other munition to do this. He did it in order as part of his intimidation menu. Talk to us a little bit about what Kinshal is, uh, and whether or not this actually constitutes any major needle moving, um, event, uh, ultimately, and certainly in the arc of this conflict. Well, hypersonic missiles are actually designed to fly at speeds which are much, much greater than the speed of sound. So Kinjal can potentially accelerate it up to 3,800 miles per hour. They're very difficult to shoot down once they start accelerating, which is what makes them um, so dangerous. The Kinjal uh, could be launched from a MiG-31 fighter, and uh, it actually has a reported range of about 1,200 miles meaning it could be launched from any part of Russia proper um, without having, um, be, without Russian military being concerned that it could be intercepted at its initial sort of um, ascending arch. Other countries are developing hypersonic missiles as well, uh, United States and China amongst them. This is the next evolution in the missile race. The question about this launch is how many kinjals does Russia have? And if this was a demonstrative launch to demonstrate its capacity, uh, or if Russia has several dozen of these that it can um, that they can use to target Ukrainian military capabilities, uh, Russian military has flaunted its development of hypersonic missiles as um, sort of um, an asymmetric answer to the NATO and United States military dominance. 
And uh, these are indeed very dangerous weapons. But the question again remains whether this was a one-off, a single launch, or if Russia intends to demonstrate um, additional launches. What is dangerous about this particular launch is the fact that Russia is now targeting Western Ukraine. While all of the fighting takes place mostly in the eastern part of the country, now Russian military wants to target Ukrainian locations, logistics, training facilities, warehouses, and any arms movements in the western portion of the country, which so far has been spared. If Russia brings up additional capability like more hypersonic missiles like Kinjal, then those Ukrainian locations, Ukrainian sites, and those capabilities located in the west near Poland could actually be endangered. Uh, and uh, uh, I would uh, speculate that that's uh, in, right. I mean, prompt strike is something that these weapons are very good at. You can get munitions uh, relatively quickly on target because of their speed. Uh, they do have penetrating capability, which is useful, but are also a very powerful messaging tool, right? You start to move these closer to NATO's border, maybe NATO countries get the message, you know, not to help, for example, right? I mean, there's messaging in this as well. Absolutely. And, and this may have been part of that messaging because... Russian government did state that it is going to target Western military convoys, which have made it inside Ukraine, making them fair game. Again, the question is whether this was a demonstrative launch or Russia intends to escalate and launch additional missiles at um, additional Ukrainian military sites and locations. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, one last question. Uh, Vladimir Putin, in uh, what can uh, only uh, be discussed as a Nuremberg rally-like uh, moment, uh, you know, all that was missing, you know, even even spectacularly uh, uh, produced, uh, even if his microphone failed, uh, and the question is whether or not that microphone failed or was pushed, Um during that, he, he declared that on April 1st, there's going to be uh, conscription. Um, how much capacity does Russia have left? Because when you talk to people in the Pentagon, their view is it's they're astonished at how rapidly he is grinding up his army and military capabilities in order to be able to prosecute this war. Well, look, Russia is a big country. Its population is around 140 million. Its official military strength with uh, the contractors and the conscripted personnel is around 900,000. So there's definitely enough human potential to uh, throw into this war if that becomes necessary. Again, the question is, uh, to what extent does the population believe in that? To what extent they're going to go along with it? And at this, at this point in time, at least right now, it appears that the majority of the Russians are for this war one way or another. It isn't entirely known uh, whether people can, can dissent in private. Uh, we don't have a good eye on um, sort of uh, uh, a lot of Russian social media activity because a lot of the social media platforms have been banned and Russians were on Western social media platforms in, in, um, in large numbers. So it is possible to call the conscription, uh, whether this is a smooth process going forward for Russia or whether there will be significant hiccups remains to be seen. It isn't clear if the Russian population at large is aware of the total losses and, uh, inflicted uh, by the Ukrainians on the Russian military in Ukraine, whether the, the bodies are actually hidden, whether people don't know what happened to their loved ones, to their sons and fathers. And so um, Russian military supposedly learned 
the question or the issue of managing media and especially um, its very active journalist uh, pool in the two wars in Chechnya when um, the Russian media was a witness to a lot of the Russian military failures that resulted in casualties. It's not clear if uh, Russian military has the same sort of, um, if, if the Russian media has the same um, aperture right now. It looks like there's a lot of state controls and it looks like the media as reporting from Ukraine is very tightly controlled and the content is very much pro-Russian and is a complete reverse of what we're seeing, for example, on many Western and Ukrainian social media platforms. Uh, Russian media tells a different story in this war, an entirely different narrative. And therefore, uh, the Russian people may not be aware of the full extent of the failures and the damages up to this point. They may think all of this is perfectly normal. Um, I want to ask one last 30-second question, but I'm just going to parenthetically put most of my uh, family was uh, in the Soviet Union, whether in Moscow or in Soviet Armenia. And I guarantee you, if you'd ask them what they thought about Leonid Brezhnev, they would tell you he is the finest leader we've ever had. And I suspect a lot of Russians are behaving the exact same way when asked these polls uh, because the walls have ears, as my relatives uh, always used to point out. 30 seconds. What kind of military capabilities does Putin want from the Chinese? What is it the Chinese can give them that he needs uh, in short order? Well, that's a very good question. And it's a, it's a topic for, for very intense discussions right now. I think uh, if I were to make an educated guess, it would be microelectronic semiconductors, uh, something that can be immediately used in, um, in the Russian uh, microelectronics and high-tech industry, which has been significantly affected by very wide-reaching sanctions on the country. So if China can deliver on that, I think other uh, systems and weapons can also be on the table. Russia asked for probably a range of things. I don't know. I don't have a list. Uh, It's difficult to estimate right now. But again, things that Russia can use immediately, things that it cannot procure anywhere else, things that it can no longer have access to, such as microelectronics and semiconductors, are probably very much uh, and very high on their list. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for making so much time uh, for us. Uh, We know how busy you are. Thanks a lot. Glad to be on. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.